0: listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number 1 tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, welcome to Affect Autism. This week we have a returning guest, Melanie Feller, who is a developmentally based speech and language pathologist and a DIR expert training leader. She is also the founder of Alphabet Soup Speech Consultants, and she has also taken Brazelton Touchpoints training and was the first speech pathologist in the United States who is self-reg certified and basically fully immersed in the developmental world. So welcome back, Melanie.
1: Thank you for having me, Daria.
0: It's great to have you back. And this week, um, listeners, we are talking about the importance of parent choice. When we talk about approaches, uh, whether your child is diagnosed with autism, or has other developmental differences, we often hear about therapeutic interventions or different approaches, and, and a lot of times uh, we only hear about applied behavioral analysis or ABA, but today we're talking about parent choice, because as I discussed with Dr. Josh uh, Fader, the move towards developmental approaches is starting to happen and it's there. So we wanted to discuss this today. So thank you so much for uh joining in, Melanie.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure.
0: So I know that um when we talked about the podcast, you mentioned there were four areas of parent choice that you wanted to cover. Did you want to tell us about those?
1: Sure. So I think about parent um parents obtaining therapeutic intervention for their child is a really multi-layered, really challenging sort of task to to undertake. And I think about it through four different areas. So I think that parents need to feel empowered um, from the therapeutic intervention that their child is receiving. They need to feel educated, they need to feel supported, and they need to feel respected. Um, And respect kind of goes with empowerment, but I still think of them as four separate areas. And I think as parents look to see what type of intervention they would like to obtain for their child, they need to kind of look at each of these areas and tick off the box and make sure, okay, I feel empowered through this. I feel like I'm being educated and supported, and I really I feel respected. I feel like a, a person, and I'm not just, you know, some random whatever that's supposed to stand aside while these experts come in and fix my child, quote-unquote.
0: Right, and do you want to tell us a little bit about Um, how you became interested in this topic and what made you think of these four areas? What's the background behind it?
1: So I have found more and more, I've been, I've been practicing for actually 15 years this month and I've found more and more as I move through my practice that parents are coming to me saying, we never even knew there was a choice. We thought ABA was the only option. Um, And then other parents will tell me, well, we have ABA, but, you know, we really don't feel like our child is progressing. We don't know what's going on. One parent actually told me that they had an ABA person come in their home, um, and the person said they would be leaving if the parent wouldn't agree to 20 hours per week because anything less was just a waste of time. Um, And that, I found that sort of thinking to be really disturbing. And I I think so many parents are exposed to that and don't, don't know enough to say, this isn't right. I need something better. I need something different. Um, just because they don't, they don't have the opportunity to be educated. They go to the doctor. The doctor says 40 hours a week, BBA and parents think, Oh my gosh, my doctor said this. It must be true. And off they go to get this intervention. That's really not much more than training, frankly. So that's kind of how I got into this area. And, and the more I think about it, you know, I created the sort of four areas that I thought were really pivotal for parents to consider as they, as they consider how they want to move forward.
0: Right. And, and I think, although we won't get into it too much today, another area moving forward is, is not to just empower, educate, support, and respect parents, but also physicians and other professionals that diagnose children. Because even, I would say, the majority of them are not really educated about all of the different options that are out there, or they're told certain things but they don't really know the, the spectrum of choices that parents have to support their children.
1: Is, I think that's such a good point. And I, I've had doctors say to me, you know, I had never heard of the IR before. My patient told me they started coming to you or to, to whoever. Um, so I think that's such a valid point.
0: Right. And, and Melanie's talking about DIR floor time, developmental individual differences, relationship-based uh, approach that we talk about here at affectautism.com where we're looking at where the child is developmentally before we do anything. We're taking into account all of their individual differences and their sensory processing profile. And we're um, using a relationship based approach where we form a good relationship with our child. We build that trust with the child we're working with and we're following the child's interests and emotional uh, motivations before we're thinking about doing anything else was there anything you wanted to add about um, about that before we get into the four different topics specifically
1: I I think you covered it I mean I think you know there's so many developmentally based options including dir there's there's play project there's um, there's you know the perfectum there's there's lots of different options and I don't I'm not I didn't I'm not trying to say that One thing is better than the other. My purpose in talking about this is more to help parents understand that there are choices there. I mean, yes, innately, I I think developmental um, practice is, is more appropriate and more respectful and really effective for children. But in the end, I think parents just need to be able to have a choice and say, okay, these are all my options. This is what I think is best for my child. This is what I'm going to go with, and we're going to see how it goes, instead of just being given this one option and not knowing anything else is out there.
0: Right, and a few months ago, I did a podcast with Amanda Bins, who is another DIR expert training leader and speech pathologist as well, like you. And she yeah, did, she's amazing. She did a co authored paper about the different um, DSP interventions, I think they're called developmental social pragmatic in the literature. And there was mm-hmm. a table that listed so many different approaches and mm-hmm. interventions, practices, whatever whatever you want to call them. And it was a table that listed all the different elements of each, and then her job in that paper was to categorize them as a yes or a no, or do they qualify as developmentally social or pragmatic. Um, it was very interesting to see because even when when our son was diagnosed I had just heard about DIR floor time and for many reasons that I've discussed many times, that's Mm -hmm. what I went with. But I wasn't even aware of all the other choices. When I saw her list, I thought, imagine a parent that has never had any kind of um, background or knowledge of autism and, they suddenly see like there's all of these options out there. How the heck do they navigate and understand what they're supposed to do or what is the best or what is this? And, and that's, and that's part of the challenge with parent choice is that it is so daunting, but Mm -hmm. the importance of it is that you need to be able to take the time and find what fits with your family the best, because it's not only about, What, um, I mean, a lot of these approaches are all evidence-based, but it's about what's best with your family, with your schedule, with your lifestyle, with, you know, do you homeschool? Are they in a public school? Are they in a private school? (laughs) What kind of school is it? So there's so many different areas, and I know it's really daunting for parents, but I think um, the idea and the starting point for us anyway, as advocates, is that we want to have the parent choice available and not just have it be um, here. You need to have this prescriptive therapy that your child must undergo. Um, So let's get into the four points that you mentioned um, empowerment being the first one.
1: Yes. And I just, I related to that. I, I think you bring up such a good point Daria that I think it's, it can be really overwhelming for parents. Like I'm not, negating that by saying parents need to be able to have a choice. I I cannot imagine how difficult it must be to have a diagnosis and then have to sort of navigate where to go from there. So I think you bring up such an important point. Um, And I think related to that, I think the first thing is that parents really need to feel empowered by whatever intervention they choose to pursue. So it's really important that parents aren't sort of pushed aside and, you know, therapy happens behind the closed door in the basement for 45 minutes. And then the child magically reappears and magically everything is okay. Again, until the the therapist comes the next time. Um, So parents need to feel like they they're capable and they are their child's best teacher because parents are their child's best teacher, even if they need support, even if they need whatever. I I firmly believe that parents know their children better than any of us experts, so to speak, could ever know them. so I think it's really important for parents to feel like they can accomplish something and they're an active participant in their child's life. They're not just sort of pushed aside while all these, you know, speech therapists, OTs, PTs, et cetera, come in and make everything better,
0: so to speak. Right. and And that's also a mindset, I think, that needs to change going forward as well, is that idea that something's broken, something's wrong, and we need to fix it. Mm-hmm. And we need to make things better. It's just that we're, our children are at different starting points and their trajectories are a little different. But um, I know that feeling when you first get the diagnosis of feeling like, oh, what's wrong? Something's wrong. We need to fix it. And that's a whole learning curve for parents, you know, on its own is getting to that place of acceptance. Like this is the child Mm -hmm. that I've been Mm -hmm. blessed with and this is what we have to work with. And now how can we best support this child? And then Mm -hmm. how do you get to that place where you're feeling empowered? And I know even for me, um, you know, I felt like I've got to listen to what people said, but there was a voice Mm -hmm. inside of me that really questioned a lot of things that the professionals were saying to me. And mm-hmm. some parents may or may not have that voice too, but I certainly have talked to a lot that have. And when it doesn't sure. sound right, you know, you got to listen to that gut feeling. If this doesn't sound right, like I really don't think that it's right, that you're making my child sit in a seatbelt at a table, mm-hmm. forcing the child to attend to this activity that he clearly mm-hmm. has no interest in at all. And mm-hmm. for crying and screaming. And so I put an end to that. I said, no, I'm not sitting here letting you do this. And then having to deal with, um, I don't know if it's uh, shame or what it is, but, you know, almost being shamed, like you're not listening to this uh, professional mm-hmm. and you're not complying with, with this that's going to help your child. And, you know, I had the whole speech given to me about um, – sure you know, letting the child experience some frustration because it if I just give it a few times, you'll see, he'll get used to it, blah, blah, blah. And, and certainly it's not black and white. Like I definitely no. was more overprotective of a parent than some. And sometimes, yeah, I don't want my child to feel that challenge that they need to move forward. But at the same time, when something really screams at you, like, I don't like this, um, what else is there? Feeling empowered well, to know that you can make a choice and, and go to something that's better fit is really important.
1: Exactly, and I think there's a different, you know, what you bring up is, is, is such a good point. It's not, it's not that you don't, you just want them to be challenged in a meaningful way. So if they're being forced to, you know, participate, like we've been talking prior to the podcast, it's this idea of like compliance drills and the child has to learn waiting and the child has to learn sitting, would you teach a neurotypical child in this fashion or would the neurotypical child just learn from their environment and kind of just, you know, move about the world and, and understand that, okay, sometimes I need to wait or sometimes I need to sit. So I think everything needs to be like, if you want to help the child be able to focus and you want to work on that in a meaningful play-based way, instead of rewarding them with these intr- extrinsic motivators that really don't support their true growth and development. Um, and I, I think there's an element of fear for parents. I think, if they don't listen, then it's like, oh my gosh, if I don't listen to this expert, what's going to happen to my kid? He's going to just be whatever their you know worst nightmare is. And I, I think that's a really significant problem. And a lot of fear-based sort of talk, um, which I've heard. I've, I've heard other practitioners say and it's pretty scary.
0: Yeah. Um, I know that the developmental psychologist out of Vancouver, Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who I, I talk about all the time, He always says that, you know, we are our kids' best bet, the parents. We have Mm -hmm. to have that confidence, and we have to understand that there's no prescription because every child is totally different. There is no prescription that you can get from any professional that's going to guarantee that everything's going to be perfect, and that goes for a neurotypical child or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to be your kid's best bet, and you have to have the confidence and know that and it is a process because your child is always changing. You're changing and growing. Um, mm-hmm. every, everybody, it, it's a dynamic process where you, he, he calls it a dance, where you're figuring out the dance and you try a mm-hmm. bunch of different things and you find something that works and then you stick with that for a while and then things change and then you do the dance again and you're constantly uh, figuring it out. And, and we are the best people. To figure that out for our own children, so I think um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: empowerment is great, and uh, and part of how you get empowered is with the education.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I, I think the more you know as a parent, I think the better, the better informed you are, the better you'll be able to make a decision. And I, I, I completely recognize as a practitioner who reads the research and who reads what's out there. There's so much out there, so it's like, how do you sift through all of the stuff? But it's so critical to do that, to be able to get what your child actually needs instead of something that's just sort of prescription and, well, he has autism, so he must get ABA. Um, and there's lots of resources out there um, for parents that are evidence-based and that can really, really help them make an informed decision
0: yeah and i and I want to just give the disclaimer, which I know um, Melanie will agree with wholeheartedly that neither one of us wants to bash ABA because a lot of families have found it to be very helpful, but personally, both of us tend to believe in a developmental relationship based approach over a behavioral approach, and we have seen and experienced better um, outcomes with developmental approaches than we've seen or stories heard and other things like that. But that's not to say that um, we want to go around bashing ABA and saying you shouldn't have ABA. A- again, just like sure. every child is different, every ABA practitioner is different. And certainly some of them have become a lot more relationship-based. And And Dr. Fader mentioned the move towards the um, naturalistic developmental behavior interventions where They're sort of behavioral ABA people moving more towards relationship-based, play-based approaches. So, um, you know, that works better for some people. And, you know, neither one of us wants to assume that we know what's best for your child.
1: Right. Exactly. And that's that's what's so important, I think, about this is just that parents have a choice. I mean, I was an ABA practitioner for years. I don't know, five, six years? Um, so, I, I mean, I've been there, I've done it, and I didn't think it was effective. I didn't think it was anything that I wanted to, to offer children by the end of my time with it. Um, was it effective in, you know, teaching numbers and letters? I guess, sort of. But the child wasn't really learning anything. It was just kind of this rote, sort of scripted, non-generalized kind of stuff. And it just it didn't resonate with me as a practitioner. and I. I think my clients have benefited greatly from a developmental approach. But like you said, it's really all about parent choice. That's what I, my my whole point is just for parents to understand that there's lots of stuff out there and they don't have to just kind of take the first thing that's offered to them.
0: Right. And, and a lot of times I know with all of the parents who have just had their child diagnosed that email me, um, you know, so many of them are just so concerned with, catching their child up before they start kindergarten so that they can learn mm-hmm. and they can count and they can know their alphabet. And ABA is great with that. You know, they, the kids mm-hmm. are saying their names. They're, they're learning how to count. They're, they're um, you know, saying their alphabet. And those are the types of things that our culture so focuses on, um, you know, on mm-hmm. the academic type things. And I guess with the developmental approach, we, we just want to stress that those social emotional capacities that are formed before kids go into kindergarten typically, or I ideally in when um, you know, learning goals and everything uh, rubrics have been developed in the past. It's based on that age um, that sometimes our kids aren't on that trajectory and it does take parents a few years to realize, oh, okay, now they can read and they can do this, but they're still lacking in that social area. And I'd like to develop their social capacities. And then they tend to move towards a developmentally based approach.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I mean, you need, it's really critical to have that foundation of engagement, being able to engage and being able to relate before anything else can really, I feel like really stick and really be understood. And there's a lot more to that discussion. But There's foundations to learning, so just teaching alphabets and colors and numbers out of context is just really foreign, I feel like, to a lot of children, and it's not meaningful, and so it can't be used in a purposeful way, and I'm not sure what the point of therapy is if you can't use what you've learned in a purposeful way.
0: And um, listeners, I'll put a link in the blog post for today's podcast to our previous podcast with Melanie where she goes into that a lot more about how um, in within the speech therapy you can generalize in all of these different concepts in a developmentally based approach can be learned and generalized. So I'll put a link to that podcast. Um, but in the meantime I did want to say and I will list these in the blog post as well, some of the places where parents can get education about developmentally based approaches and um, certainly they're all based from The DIR floor time um, and Dr. Stanley Greenspan is at this site here, of course, affectautism.com, right at the Start Here link. You can go and look at all of the different blog posts, podcasts um, that are categorized by topic, and just go in and browse. It would take you hours and hours and hours to get through everything. Certainly, there are lots of books under the Books link. You can see I've put a list of wonderful books that have been published that are very helpful. The Greenspan floor time approach is Dr. Greenspan's son, Jake Greenspan, on his website. I think it's also at stanleygreenspan.com. They have a parent courses and, and parent information there. Of course, the play project that you mentioned. I did a podcast with Dr. Solomon um, a few weeks back or a couple months ago, and, and he said that he has lots of videos available as well. So there's links to that. There's the Perfectum Parent Toolkit And Perfectum is uh, Dr. Serena Weider, who co-wrote Engaging Autism with Dr. Greenspan and was his colleague for years. And so they have um, all kinds of resources for parents. And then, of course, uh, ICDL, which Melanie and I are both associated with, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, ICDL.com, they have a number of resources there as well, including all of Dr. Greenspan's old radio shows, which let me tell you, if anybody likes podcasts, you just got to listen to some of those old radio shows. Yes, they are from many years ago, but that information that's in there is gold. And every time I listen to anything um, with Dr. Greenspan, I learn something new. And then finally, what got me um, onto DIR floor time was Dr. Stuart Shanker and his website is now self-reg.ca for self-regulation. He worked with Dr. Greenspan. They did that uh, research study at York University about DIY before time. And now he's bringing self-reg to the masses in, all over Canada and spreading out. And we've done a podcast with him as well. So at self-reg.ca, um, you can find out a number of resources about that first emotional capacity of self-regulating and that how important that is to learning. And he talks about it as being, um, not misbehavior, but stress behavior. And how can we lower the stress for our children, including ourselves as well? So, uh, um, so I
1: think those are all great resources and I think parents will be able to find so much information on them. The com website alone, um, is, really 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 helpful like you said the radio shows and there's lots of literature on the site as well um and videos it's just a great resource for parents
0: absolutely um and the next thing you mentioned was support so having having this support for parents where you're not just going in and you're given a book here go read engaging autism have a nice life but having that ongoing support where where you're touching base, and and can you talk a little bit about how that is a balance? Where you said the, the parent is the their kid's best choice, and they need to feel empowered and have and educated. But then, how do you um, support that going forward?
1: I think it's a hard balance to find. I mean, I think that you need to find practitioners that really. are willing to learn about the individual differences that your child presents with and that are willing to learn about their developmental profile and are willing to have a a really robust relationship with them. Notice that's the D, the I, and the R. Um, But those are really critical pieces to therapy. So I think by finding practitioners that can support all that in the child, the parent will automatically feel supported because they're looking at their child receiving and participating in these services and they're like, hey, My kid's making progress. My kid's really happy. Every time the therapist comes to our home or we go to their office, my child is smiling and everything's really exciting and happy for the most part. Um, so I think that's supportive in and of itself. Um, but I also think that a supportive environment can be had from the clinicians providing education for parents, telling parents, you know, how great they're doing offering coaching. I think it's a really, it's a multifaceted, um, it's a multifaceted word and a multifaceted sort of idea to think about support, but there's support from lots of different avenues for child and parent. And I think the most important thing, getting back to empowerment is just parents need to feel empowered by what they're receiving and what their child is participating in.
0: Yeah. And, and I also think, um, you know, it's the support thing kind of goes two ways because you could have the situation where you kind of feel, Like maybe this professional that I'm going to see or practitioner isn't really providing the support that I need. But then as a developmental practitioner, you could also feel that you have a lot of resistance from the parent. So just to give you an example, when I first learned about floor time and got in contact with the team at York University that had done the, the study, I asked them if they did consultations. And, um, a couple of them would come to our house once a week, um, not together, but like one of them came and then we used the other one for a while and then mm-hmm. we had the other one for a while. So they would mm-hmm. come and, and I totally took advantage of that time as, whoo, okay, I get to do dishes. I get to catch up on this. Sure. I get to do this. So you go play with my kid. Uh, I'm going to get some stuff done. And I yeah. really did not understand that whole parent involvement piece at all. I didn't understand at the beginning that, no, I was supposed mm-hmm. to be there with that therapist doing mm-hmm. my, and having fun with my child and, and getting coached by them. And it wasn't mm-hmm. that I was unwilling. I just was unaware maybe at first. Exactly. But, but other parents really might be unwilling. They they say, oh, no, I don't want to do it. I, I, I don't know how to play with him or her. I, I don't mm-hmm. know what to do. I, I just want you to do it. and I'll come back in an hour. <laughs>
1: And that's such a hard balance. I think, I mean, as a therapist, I've, I've worked with many parents that are like that. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want 45 minutes from, you know, where your child is cared for and you can go do your dishes or relax or get your business, you know, work done. Um, and sometimes maybe you don't want to participate because you're dealing with this 24-7 and all you want is a little bit of respite. So I, I as a practitioner, I can appreciate that. I don't know what that's like as a parent, but I can appreciate that from my perspective. Um, and I think a lot of it falls on the practitioner. You know, if I know mom is really overwhelmed and one day I'm coming, maybe I'm not going to say, hey, mom, you know, do you want to sit in with us for the whole session? Maybe in the last 15 minutes, I'll encourage mom to sit in with us um, and see if she'd like to just kind of get a feel for what we're doing. And even just observe, you know, parents don't always have to participate. They can just observe. Um, like when I work, I have an open door policy. So parents can always see and hear what's going on. Um, and even that in and of itself, sometimes is just enough.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 also finding that balance in the parents' individual difference, um, and and the therapist or practitioner, like just finding that balance where you're almost doing floor time with the parents as well to get a feel for uh, let me mm-hmm. the parents leave, let me see where they are, let me scaffold their learning wherever mm-hmm. they are developmentally and, and whatever their individual style is and and it might take a while to get some parents on board and others are there from the start just wanting to do everything and and almost tell you no 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 he likes this instead you know so there's yes a, yes I, spectrum of parents as I, well
1: I, yes and i'm sorry i just want to add you know i never i never want to dismiss the parent like so if a parent doesn't really want to be involved for multiple sessions and they're really eager to just kind of sit back or step out of the room or I'm I don't push that I really want the parents to feel comfortable so I invite but I never push and I I think there's a level of respect there that's like it's, it's okay you're it's a lot going on you need some time it's okay let's try to reconvene at the end part way through and see where we are but I don't dismiss parents just because they may not want to participate the way some other parents might, and I think that's that's really important. You shouldn't be sort of pushed aside because you don't want to be in the session, you know, a hundred percent of the time. Right,
0: and um, and let's talk about what the support looks like once the parent is on board and and maybe more actively. So you can let me know if this is what it sounds like for you. But my idea is that. Mm-hmm something like what I've been doing with Andrea Davis on some of my blog posts over the last few years where Mm -hmm. I will share with her a video of my son and I playing together and we'll Mm -hmm. do that self-reflection piece where, you know, she'll say, what were you thinking going in? Do you have goals for the session? Um, How was your regulation? How did you feel during the session? How did it go? How did you think your son responded? Um, looking at mm-hmm. different things that happen, different back and forth interactions. Did you notice that when you did this, your son responded in this way? Did you notice that when your son did this, that you responded in this way? And and just reflecting on all the different aspects is such a, a powerful growth process and certainly mm-hmm. has been for me that a lot of parents are very reluctant to do. And not even because we don't want to be criticized, but just because it's just another chore on our list of things to do. Like, oh, now I got to videotape myself. And, oh, mm-hmm. I feel, vid- I feel s- s- ridiculous seeing myself on film. I don't want to look at myself on film. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, even there, there's a whole bunch of different individual differences in the willingness of parents to do that videotaping and self-reflection. But even if you're just kind of reporting and checking in, You know, my idea Mm -hmm. of ongoing support is, is just doing that, just that, just checking in saying, how, how has it been going? What are the issues that you've been facing? What are some of the successes you've had? And really trying to support the parent in the best way possible by just checking in periodically, whether it's weekly, whether it's biweekly, whether it's monthly or whether it's quarterly, Mm -hmm. Um, just having that ongoing relationship with the family.
1: Exactly. So it's not just the relationship with the child, it's the relationship with the whole family or whoever the caregiver is, Um, right? So speech therapy or whatever kind of therapy isn't happening in a bubble. Everyone's involved and you're making sure that everyone's on board and comfortable. Um, And it's important to check in with parents from session to session, especially because you don't know what the child has experienced before the session. What if something has changed dramatically? What if something was an amazing accomplishment? What if things have been really hard so it's it's really important to check in. And I think it's important for parents to feel um, like someone cares, you know, professionally, obviously. But like, hey, how is, your, how is your child doing? And they can speak knowing that the practitioner on the other end is actually hearing them and then maybe factoring that in to how the session will, will proceed from there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just even... Just even reflecting, like I know we we bring our son to a total approach in Pennsylvania, Modeler's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Clinic, and mm-hmm. I love hearing her say things like, you know, when you first brought him here, he used to lay on the floor and look around, and that was telling us that he needed to feel grounded and absorb the mm-hmm. environment, and he was at this place developmentally. And now we see him mm-hmm. come in, he's so comfortable, he's saying hi, he's, telling all the therapists, all the things that he wants to do. And, you know, he's just such a different child now developmentally because he's moved up so far in those early social, emotional, developmental capacities. And so Mm -hmm. for me, it's great to even hear things like that because you know, I'm in it day to day. I, I have any kind of break and I forget, I forget those things. I forget that even two years ago, or well, let me see. No, no, I'm, I don't remember how many years, but anyway, let's just say, you know, like, um, four and a half years ago, my child was still breastfeeding. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. a scary thought. And, you know, two and a half years ago, uh, we were getting him out of diapers or whatever it was three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and those daily struggles of just bathroom stuff, like I don't even experience that anymore. And I've forgotten about it. And just to think mm-hmm. like, wow, like we were struggling with those things. And and now we're struggling with the fact that my little guy's becoming so independent that he realizes, hey, I don't have to listen anymore. I can have a, mm-hmm. a decision of my own and, and do my own things. And I'm like, I know, please listen to me. <laughs> when, you know, when he starts getting I woke up the other day and uh, I didn't get down quick enough. And I, I can't remember if I just said this on a podcast the last podcast I recorded too, but there he was mm-hmm. helping himself to a bag of salt and vinegar chips that he poured the whole humongous bag at my parents' house onto this bowl and it had spilled out all over onto the floor and everything. And he's sitting there with his iPad having a great old breakfast of salt <laughs> and vinegar chips by the time I came down. Oh my God. It adorable and hilarious, but I mean, mm-hmm. he never in a million years would have thought or known about looking in the pantry first of all remembering that mm-hmm. uh, he liked chips remembering that they were in the pantry going to get it bringing it out mm-hmm. getting himself a bowl in the cupboard that's pretty high he's he's definitely getting taller but it still it was a reach for him to get that glass bowl not breaking it i mean so many steps of motor planning there that he would not have been able mm-hmm. to do years ago so i love hearing that um when i am visiting practitioners and And professionals that I've worked with my son for years, I love hearing them review that progress because it is a reminder that takes you out of the struggle that you're going in now to reflect and say, hey, Mm -hmm. you know, we've come a long way and and this is good. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. I think that's and that makes you feel great as a parent. And I I think that's so important because then you're like, hey, I can do this and you keep doing it. And that's really good for your child. So it's a nice sort of cycle there.
0: Yeah. and, And also having that trust and I guess this starts to get into your fourth point about respect, but when you, when you feel that respect from the team that you're working Mm -hmm. with and when they Mm -hmm. respect you and they respect your child, you really build that relationship, the R and the DIR model with, with that practitioner. And you have that trust Mm -hmm. where you really can kind of relax in their guidance. So, you know, I know that Maude LaRue has seen hundreds of children in her clinic, and I know that she has seen such progress in all of these kids, and I I trust that what she's suggesting um, in terms of a program or something that we're going to do, like, um, you know, we've we've done tomato sound therapy, for instance, um, and we're doing interactive metronome now to work on timing and sequencing, And Mm -hmm. so when she Mm -hmm. suggests those kinds of things, I'm trusting her because I know that she is coming from a place of seeing, seeing these developmental gains and helping the children where they're challenged the most. And, um, and that's kind of a little bit about the respect, but do you want to get into Mm -hmm. more about in terms of the parent choice and the advocacy that you were thinking of when you thought of respect as, as the fourth, uh, important piece of parent choice.
1: I think, well, and actually I'm, i relating this back to a point you just said, because I think the therapy and the therapist needs to respect the parent and the child and all these four principles kind of apply not only to parent, but to child as well, because I think children need to feel empowered and educated and supported and respected, um, because I think they want to be active participants. If all of that is taking place innately, they want to be an active participant, even if it's hard, even if whatever the struggle is. Um, So I think just putting that out there, I think these principles apply to both um, parents and children. Um, But back to your original point, I think a lot of times I feel like parents are sort of berated or told they didn't do the right thing or they're not doing a good job. And there's, I think practitioners need to have a a level of respect, even if we don't agree with what the parent is doing, even if we think, wow, this is a really challenging situation. I wish maybe parent had done something a little bit different. There's this underlying level of respect for the parent just because they're the parent and they're with the child 24-7. And to me, their opinion matters more than anything else. So I may disagree. I may say, hey, can we look at this a different way? But in the end, they're still the parent and they're still, I think, the child's best advocate and the child's best teacher.
0: Right. And in terms of um, advocating, I mean, it's, it's not only us respecting the parent, but thinking from a parent perspective, the amount that I need to advocate for my child as well. So... Um, depending on where I go or who I'm speaking with, they may have assumptions about my child because of my child's diagnosis Mm -hmm. or history and just being Mm -hmm. able to advocate and say, you know, this, this is what my child needs. This is what we need to do. This is how you need to respect my child or whatever.
1: Exactly. Like, I don't like what you're doing. I like what you're doing. This isn't working for me. This is working for me. And parents should feel like, hey, I can say all this stuff. It's not like this super-duper amazing, scary expert is in my home, and so I have to just be very quiet and let them do their magic. But there needs to be active participation, and parents should be able to say, hey, I really don't like this. Why are you doing this? Always ask why. I think that's that's really the, the biggest takeaway I hope, I hope from – if you know, parents are listening today. It's just, to ask why. Why is the practitioner doing this with my child? Why did I pick this therapy? Why? Why about everything? Always ask why. Always critically think about what's taking place in front of you and where you hope to go next. Um, but always question what's happening. Never just take things just because somebody told you, okay, this is the best way. Always question.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, a good professional will be happy. Always be happy to explain why.
1: Exactly. Always, always. I'm um, As to why I'm doing whatever it is. And if a parent says to me, I love that, I'll explain. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm doing this because of X, Y, and Z. Or if a parent says to me, I'm not sure why you're doing that. I really, I don't think that's working. I'll say, okay, you know, this is what I'm thinking. I'm seeing this in your child. Let's think about where we can go from here. So I think clinicians shouldn't necessarily take it as a personal attack, which I, I feel happens to a lot of people. Um, I know, and I myself included, sometimes it's hard to, you know, if a parent's giving you feedback that you don't necessarily want to hear, it's hard to not think, oh my gosh, I'm a really bad practitioner. And it, I don't think it's about that at all. I think it's about parents getting what they need for their children and practitioners practicing in a way that's respectful and effective and evidence-based. And that really considers the D and the I and the R for every child they work with.
0: Absolutely. And, and, your point was so good about the fact that it's for the child as well. We need to have the child feel empowered. We need to educate the child and provide that support for the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, we're moving towards the child to be a self-advocate for themselves. Uh, we talked about mm-hmm. that with Virginia Spielman in Sensory mm-hmm. Lifestyle um, a wonderful video podcast that I did with her about individual differences in sensory processing and, and how we do want to really instill in our children, uh, not only recognizing when they're becoming dysregulated, but getting to the point where they can advocate for what they need. You know what? It's really loud exactly. here, and I need a few minutes to myself. I, I need a quiet spot. Is there somewhere I can go? Being able to mm-hmm. exactly. let people know because um, you know we're that advocate for the child. You know, if I'm if I'm out in public with my child and I see that something's happening and I can see, oh, if we don't do something about this right away, there's going to be um, a lot of dysregulation happening. Then I can mm-hmm. you know I can advocate, but eventually, when the child's able to do that for themselves, is is where we all want to head towards.
1: Exactly.
0: And I think the other point about respect that we did touch on already, um, you mentioning before, no compliance drills, no, uh, when I mentioned strapping my son in a seat at a table, and, you know, if if they're crying and they don't want to do it, not forcing them mm-hmm. to do it. Just simple, mm-hmm. common sense respect for a child mm-hmm. and for a family. And you know what? It It is a pain in the butt if you're paying – hundred and something dollars out of pocket for therapy. And that day your kid just wants no part of it. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, it's not the end of the world if they don't get in that therapy session that day. Um, So we we definitely want to respect uh, the child's um, peace and regulation.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's, there's a nice middle ground somewhere. It's just a matter of finding it. Like you said, the dance between everyone involved. Um, and I hope the parents can consider all that as they as they move forward in their journey.
0: Right. Well, um, I think this was a great topic to discuss how important it is for parents to have choice and to feel empowered, to feel educated, to feel supported, to feel respected, and to want the same for our children when we're looking for any kind of um, approaches, therapeutic interventions, whatever kinds of uh services we choose for supporting our ch- child's development. So uh thank you so much Melanie for bringing this topic to us. And thank you uh, for having me. Yeah, it's been it's been very very interesting to go through all of these principles that you thought of and for the listeners again at affectautism.com I will post um, an accompanying write up to this podcast where I'll have links to everything that we referred to in terms of where you can find out more for education and advocacy and, and some of the past blog blog, blog posts and podcasts that I've referenced. (laughs) So uh, thank you, Melanie. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.